I'm Danielle. And I'm Christy. And you are listening to Snacks with Stein. Let's do it. Um, excuse me, I was enjoying our theme song. Well, Kenny said we had to make an announcement about the podcast launching tomorrow. Wait, like tomorrow, tomorrow? Yep. It'll be the first time we tell each other our favorite R.L. Stein stories and enjoy some tasty snacks. Wow. I better get some snacks. Me too. But how will we know if anyone listened to the show? Oh, the podcast machine tells me. There's a graph and everything. But also, people who listen, they'll probably go and like and comment on our Facebook page, which can be found at Snacks with Stein. That was a sly plug, Christy. Thanks. I try. But until tomorrow, we are out. Like Janet Jackson's right nipple. (laughs) That's good. Thank you for letting us in. I was burying bodies out in the desert. Neighbors claimed they practice witchcraft. What about your skin? Uh, no. <laughs> I just gotta take it off, man. It's just bothering me. This winter. Feeling like an alligator. Feeling like an Aveeno commercial. Anyway, how the fuck are you? I'm pretty good. I've been all right. But most importantly, how are you guys? I say as I turn and face directly into the mic. Staring at nothing. (laughs) Staring at dead air. Staring at dead air. That's what you are, dead air. Yeah, it's it's very odd um, being a content creator. No, I'm like, it's, it's, weird. <laughs> I know, right? Not, not me, but, um, <laughs> our listeners are like, bitch, where? Bitch, where's the content? <laughs> no, it's weird because, like, we record this podcast and we put it out there, and it's kind of like when we're recording, I mean, we've been at this in February, it'll be like two years, but it's like, um, and we still haven't gotten any fucking better. No, it's, <laughs> we record it and we put it out there, and it's like, I don't know, it's weird to me. Like, well, like, they're listening, but they're also, I don't know, it's its very odd. Are they listening? Are they? Who's listening? Or is no one listening? Have I just been downloading My mom all listen. of these? <laughs> it's just This us. whole time. And, and created all of these fake accounts on our Facebook group, and now it's one huge lie that but I have to But no, keep do you know what I mean? Like, I, like, even still, like, we record, and then we put an episode out, and then, like, people will make, like, comments about the episode, like, in the Facebook group, and I'm like, what? I'm mm-hmm. like, you listen to my huh? episode? <laughs> Me? You listen to me. I'm like, me. what? You do? No, yeah. It's uh it's pretty crazy, but um thank you for listening and welcome back. If to you are, in fact, listening. The Haunted Heart Podcast, folks. Uh, if you're new to this show, my name's Kenny and um Oh, I forgot we were trying to introduce yeah, ourselves. We my name's Katie and yeah. I'm apparently struggling with being a content creator. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing new there. Uh, is there a uh <laughs> What are those, uh, like, AA meetings, but for content creators? Oh, that needs to be a thing. I that think it's called depression. Anyway. <laughs> yes. I think it's called Zoloft. <laughs> I think I get more anxiety, though, for than what? depression. From what? About 
creating content. Like oh. I feel like it is more anxiety inducing than depression inducing Listen, for me. Because I don't get sad. We're not going back there. <laughs> We're moving forward. Healthier, <laughs> happier lives and healthier, happier content creators. That's true. Well, yeah. I say <laughs> <laughs> with it with a sigh. No, but if you have if you have content creators that you like, not us, because I'm not asking for fucking like ass pats, but like if you have content creators that you listen to or you pay attention to, whether they're like podcasts or YouTubers or whatever, you should message them or comment on their shit and be like, I enjoyed you. Yeah, and because you know? sometimes it feels like a like a weird vacuum, and you just like throw content in, and you're just like, well. The void. It feels somewhat yeah. like putting a, a like a message in a bottle. Yeah, and then totally. you just kind of throw it into the ocean. And you're just like, well, do well. Yeah, and the message just you never know if it reaches anyone until Twitter sends a message back to you, <laughs> and it's you on know. fire. <laughs> it's on fire. Yeah, uh, but no, yeah. I completely get that. Um, shout out uh, to two very special content creators. Actually, not us, uh, but you may have heard them at the top of the episode. Those are our murder mods. I hope you members. heard them at the top of the episode. <laughs> you, yes. You said that like it was open, like maybe you heard them. <laughs> maybe. Maybe I remembered to put it in post. <laughs> Who knows? Christy and Danielle. Christy and Danielle, yes. So they are launching their brand new uh, show, uh, called Snacks with Stein, and it launches tomorrow. Uh, they decided to break away from us and start their own thing. They are not breaking um, away from us. They are not leaving us. You're not. Do you hear me? You are not you, leaving us. You, you get back down. You are not leaving us. You get back down. You get back the on basement. that Facebook page. <laughs> get back on the Facebook page right now. There's some things that or need to be modded. We will have to, you know... You know, pull uh, an Annie Wilkes on you. I deleted. <laughs> by the way, I just want to say shout out to the mods. I love y'all. I deleted the first post that I've ever deleted on the page the other day. <laughs> I saw literally, that. just because it reminded me. Did you see my comment? I it, did. it literally just yes, reminded me of my ex boyfriend's artwork. And I was like, gotta go. Sorry. <laughs> like, <laughs> I saw that. And even I was like, well. Nope. <laughs> I was like, we post. There's been worse things in the Facebook group. Nah, but too reminiscent. When you add Triggered. in ex-boyfriend's artwork, I was like, eh. Yeah, I had this ex who used to like draw women absolutely like destroyed and like mutilated and shit. And I thought it was cute because I was a dumbass and I was like a teenager <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is like this is this is cool. He's just edgy. Nah, he's not. No, I'm the no, only no. edge lord in my life. <laughs> That's, That's how true. I live now. Um, also, but- I shun visual artists so much, which is why I'm glad that you can do graphic design because, like, we couldn't hire a visual, visual artist for this art. show. And it's fine. You're different. You're different. <laughs> you're the only one that's allowed. Okay. You also have green eyes, too. You better watch the fuck out. Yeah. Well. Next week, Snacks with, with Stein just shows up on the feed instead of us. Pretty much. Uh, <laughs> no, like, well, they, they, they split. What, what they're doing is they are uh, one week. They they're, It's a biweekly podcast. One week uh, they will be reading from Fear Street. And then uh, the next they will be reading from Goosebumps. So it's going to be full of nostalgia, Fuck full yeah. of laughs. I'm so excited. Funniness. Um, if you love us, then I'm sure you're going to love them because we do. And uh, we're so excited to uh, be there to support them. Yeah. You can also check them out on their Patreon at Snacks with Stein, on Facebook at Snacks with Stein. Uh, and yeah, so much love to you guys. Yeah, much love to you guys. I'm excited for your show. If you uh, if you like our kind of like back and forth, chill, just hanging out with friends sort of vibe, 
um, you will like them because they have a similar vibe. Yeah. And we already got a sneak peek on the first episode because we're on their Patreon. So We got that sneak peek. Anyway. Sneaking and peeking. it out there. Mm-hmm. And speaking of talented creators, I guess I can't say content, but talented creators in our, uh, in our Haunted Heart family. We have so many. Like I, everyone's we so do. creative. Everybody's our 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 people are fucking the best. But anyway, um, we wanted to mention a holiday shop that we have partnered with to do our holiday cards this year, and that is Violet Moth. Yes, we're actually doing a special uh, giveaway over on our Instagram, uh, which you can find at the Haunted Heart Podcast. Uh, but we are partnered with Violet Moth, and she is amazing. Um, we have known her for, God, since pretty much the beginning. Like, not yeah. quite the beginning, I don't think, but, like, it's been a minute. She's been here for a hot minute. She's been hanging in there, you know what I'm saying? And I appreciate a bitch who can hang, because yes. it's, it's been a wild ride. <laughs> um, yes, but she has the most uh, amazing, fun, like, spooky artwork. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, she's done everything from, like... Like we ordered a bunch, like we ordered our Christmas cards from her. Um, she mm-hmm. does jewelry. She can kind of do pretty much everything. Yeah. Um, but she's sort of we're partnering with her for a uh, mystery box giveaway um, over on our Instagram, and there's also a separate one on our Facebook group. So go check that out, and you can also uh, check her out as well on Instagram at Violet Moth. V I. Oh, are you doing L-E-T-Y. this again? Oh my god! Oh my god! Google it. Google will help you. You don't need to know things anymore. I just don't want them to think that I'm anymore. saying violent moth. Oh, violent moth! <laughs> Can you imagine, like, just a fucking moth that's like losing it? No. It's that moth meme, but the light is not there anymore, and so he's like fucking raging, or he's had just like six Bud Light. Yeah, <laughs> he's like he's going after it. Yeah. yeah, no, but seriously, check out her store. Her store is amazing. If you need Christmas cards, but you're not like a super Christmassy person, um, like definitely go there, check it out. She has like interesting like twists on things. Yeah. And be checking your mailbox Patreon for our Christmas card. Because mm-hmm. it's going to be. I don't know nothing about that. I don't do the Christmas you. cards. That's on Katie. I'm going to get fucking Carpal Tunnel. All these motherfuckers. <laughs> I'm like, damn. <laughs> I was Shit. looking at the list today and I was like, I gotta write a bunch of cards. Like, let me get my wrist, like, guard thing on. Yeah. That I have for my carpal tunnel. See, wow. that's how you can tell we're aging podcasters. It's like we're mentioning carpal tunnel. Our fucking tendons are going. Anyway, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, uh but I think that's it for the housekeeping. I think though, it right? is. I keep thinking there was something else. No, we. Oh, got- if you want to send us a postcard, I got a couple messages this week about our PO box. Um, it's on our Instagram. Under, like, if you just go to our Instagram page and check out under our name, like, it's the P.O. Box is listed there for sure. But if you have a pen or if you want to pause the podcast and go get a pen, if you're trying to send us a Christmas card, we would love to get Christmas cards from you guys. That would be amazing. Um, The address is The Haunted Heart, P.O. Box 6047, Leesburg, L-E-E-S-B-U-R-G, Virginia, 20178. That's the P.O. Box. If you will send it there, uh, we will check the fucking P.O. Box this month, I promise. Um, <laughs> we will check it regularly because yeah. I know a couple of people messaged me that they were trying to send stuff. Um, and if you do send us stuff, by the way, I realize that I don't always ask people if they want us to fucking open what they sent us on 
like Facebook Live, but usually we, if we get like a package or anything, we open it on Facebook Live. So if you don't Fuck want yeah. us to open your shit and be like, oh, or this read is from. Shit. <laughs> yeah. Like if you don't want that, if you're trying to send me a hot, steamy letter and you don't want to like put it out there, just let me know. Okay. Just put, <laughs> write me a little note. Just be like, it's between us two. Yeah. You know, or us three. I mean, you could write a letter to me and Kenny. Yeah. I mean, hey. I mean, there's always room. <laughs> really, I couldn't tell in this fucking recording space right That's here. Like, there's, I there is couldn't. no room here, but <laughs> there's room in my heart. Yes. I think that's it for housekeeping now. I think right. that was actually everything. So we can get in. We can get on in. Awesome. Only 10 minutes and 50 seconds. Anyway. <laughs> it's cool. So um, it's I kind of don't know what we're talking about this week. <laughs> so we are, uh, you know, you guys know that we're not necessarily uh, Christmas people. If there's a war on Christmas, it might be us, girl. <laughs> You know, it's just fucking me and fucking like camo with a bandana, and I've just got fucking uh, damn jack o' lantern fucking machine guns, and I'm just like, yeah, yeah. Christmas is tough. We just made it through Halloween, and then we have Thanksgiving, which I actually enjoy, and I know you do too because we both husky. We enjoy an eating holiday. Oh, I love a food holiday. We love a food holiday. We love a food holiday where you ain't got to worry about presents. You ain't got to buy nothing for nobody. You just got to make sure you made those deviled eggs and brought them. Mm-hmm. And that potato salad. And make sure that sweet potato casserole has enough pecan crust on the top because I can't stand a sweet potato casserole that has like three pecans on top. Let me the tell... The crust is the best. Hold on. Let me tell you the dissatisfaction that I faced. What was At that? work, they did a special trauma corner. They did a special Thanksgiving hot buffet. Okay, and I was so excited. And when I went to go open up the little thing, the little hot buffet uh, container for the sweet potatoes. What are they? Do have? you know what they put on top of the sweet potatoes? Marshmallows. Chex mix. Oh my. God, I opened, I opened this container, and I'm like, I thought this was supposed to be sweet. Potato. Oh my, this is a lot. Hashtag live react. I haven't heard this fucking story. I was who the in the first. hell? It was catering. I don't know catering from my work. It was some bougie ass bitch. I opened thing because I was the first one in line. You know I was, <laughs> and I opened up the container, the little silver platter, and I opened it up because it said sweet potato casserole right on top, and I opened it up and I saw. Chex Mix. And I'm like, where's the fucking sweet potato? So then I'm like, what is this? So Did you clutch the, the like the opening of the container to yourself? I was like, I kind of like held back. And then I took the spoon and I like poked at it. And then once I poked in a little further, I realized the sweet potato was beneath the Chex Mix. They had used Chex Mix as a topping for sweet potato casserole. Where the fuck they do that at? I've I, never I'm, been. I've never heard of that. I've never heard of such Chex a monstrosity. Honestly, potato. this can no. be the subject of the podcast for today because this is scary enough. <laughs> Honestly, well, you remember the last fuck? time we is did that a-, a UK thing? Is that is that a U? It seems like it might be a white people thing. I I, I don't know. Um, it but seems like it. It seems like some horrible thing that a British. I'm like that do. meme going around where that girl in the confessional was like, "I was disgusted, like uh, disgusted." <laughs> That girl? It was yeah. just tragic. And I'm still trying to make it uh, 
That is, he he honestly had not told me about that. Mm-mm. That was true trauma. That was trauma. You kept that. I, I put for the like lid right back on it. <laughs> Let me tell you that much. Mm. I said, mm, I no bet man. they didn't have a deviled egg in there either. No, did they? no deviled egg. Not either. a deviled egg to be seen. Mm-mm. Nope. See, this is the this is the horror of corporate America. This I mean, is Chex true. Mix on your sweet potato casserole. You know what? If you put Chex Mix on your sweet potato casserole, don't even email us at the Haunted Heart Podcast <laughs> at gmail.com. Don't even email. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. I don't think I've been that mad. I kind of do want to uh, know. It maybe it's a Kansas thing. I don't know. I think I don't think I've been that mad since uh, the the episode with um, Mandela. Oh yeah, <laughs> you were triggered. You saw that Chex Mix, and you were like, and then the person behind you was like, "No, we've always topped sweet potato casserole with Chex Mix." And then I fucking like you can't have sweet them potato with that fucking silver <laughs> platter. <laughs> you can't have sweet potato casserole without Chex Mix. Yeah, and then I turned around and topped them with that silver platter, and then <laughs> and then amazing put it right. Back I'm gonna do that to you thing. next year. I'm gonna I'm gonna serve you sweet potato casserole with Chex Mix. Listen, on we top. can't spend this whole. And I'm gonna be like Kenny. We've always done it this way. What do you mean? <laughs> And then there was a murder. You just like uh, jump off the balcony. We, can't, we, all right. We've got to stop talking about food. Okay. You remember the last time we had an episode that talked about food? I think it probably to this was day has maybe like twenty downloads. Oh yeah, <laughs> last meals. Woo, yeah. that was tough. I that was a better experimental theater topic than it was a podcast topic. You know, you Great live in and you theory, learn. Theory, not so much in uh, practicality. I mean, the theater piece I did like years ago was cool. It didn't work. It didn't quite work out in an audio format. No. But, you know, kind of like that thing we were talking about where you just chuck the content into a black hole. Yeah. yeah it's fine. No. Uh, so getting back to our topic at hand, we're not the most Christmassy people. In modern times, Christmas is all about holiday cheer, warmth, happiness, spending time with family and friends. And aunts that you don't really fucking like. And shopping. Yeah. Also shopping. Lots of shopping. A vomit-inducing amount of shopping. And hashtag consumerism. Yeah. But it didn't always... It didn't always be like that. I don't know where that was supposed to go. <laughs> it didn't always be it like that. It wasn't always like that. It, it, it ain't like always that. be that way. <laughs> uh Dating at least as far back as the Victorian era, probably further, honestly. Pagans, where y'all at? Christmas wasn't really all that different from Halloween. A many, pagan is somewhere and they're like raising their hand. They're like, I'm here. Hey, we're here. Uh, many believed that Christmas was actually a time when, or Christmas adjacent. When I say Christmas, I mean like the latter part of December. Um, was a time when the veil between the natural and spirit worlds was at its thinnest. And because the days were long and cold, it was a time of year for families to gather around the fire and inevitably tell stories. What type of story? Ghost stories, Ooh. girl. See, this is what I love about the holiday. I don't, I, all right, I'm going to put it this way. I don't celebrate, I don't necessarily say that I celebrate Christmas. Mm-hmm. I partake in a few christmas activities you gonna be at the meal such as gift giving (laughs) i I don't celebrate christmas but i'm gonna be at the table but i'm gonna be at the table yes because food uh (laughs) and i you know do that but um i like to view it i like to celebrate more of the winter time more of the yule type side of things i like that portion of it and i celebrate that side more often my decor doesn't necessarily won't 
like I don't do snowmans and Santas and all that crap, but I love like holly berries and I love mm-hmm. like you know uh, those types of like scents and like that warmth of like coming in and then like the stillness and spookiness of the night. Um, I love that, and I think it's uh, I think it's underrated. I think frank. it's cold. Well, we, so I'm not a fan. I know. I know you're not. <laughs> I know you get sad. Yes, I get I get that fucking seasonal affective disorder, and it just messes with me. We had that conversation today. You are the the oak queen. I am the holly king. I we, we need to talk about that because I can be the oak king. Have you never heard of like King Tamar? She was a woman. Uh, I mean, yeah, but let's be let's be real. She could be an oak king, honey. I mean, yeah, but let's be real. But let's be real. <laughs> let's be real. You would still be the queen. That's true. That's true. I don't think they let you be king if your boobs are like to a certain degree. They're like, no. Or either that's how you become king. Who knows? Who knows? No, 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 no. I just meant you as like, I just feel like you would would fit more Are you calling me queen. queenly? Yes. That's, uh-huh. but that's exactly what I'm trying to say. Queen Elizabeth is <laughs> insulted. She shook. <laughs> So, yes, families would gather around the fire, around the holidays, and tell stories to entertain each other. So, remember, there was no TV or radio back then, so Christmas gatherings were given over to the telling of ghost stories. Guests would gather around the hearth on a cold winter's night and try to send chills down each other's spines with blood-curdling tales of the paranormal. In other words, very much our aesthetic here. Mm Mm-hmm. And while this time of year certainly speaks to telling ghost stories because of the abundance of darkness, again, seasonal affective disorder, um, and it being the season of death in the natural world, uh, historians also cite the celebrations of Yule, celebrated this year from December 22nd to the 1st, or to the 2nd, sorry, of January, and um, winter solstice, Mm -hmm. which is on the 21st of December, as reasons that English society in particular took on the tradition of telling ghost stories in the days leading up to Christmas, and most especially on Christmas Eve. You see, the winter solstice is the shortest and darkest day of the year, and it was, and still is, believed that the dead can easily interact with the living on this day and night. Uh, This tradition is most popularly reflected in Charles Dickens' famous classic tale, A Christmas Carol. Yes, A Christmas Carol is a ghost story, after all. Yeah, Even though lots of people don't think of it as a ghost story. Yeah, totally. Which technically makes the 1992 rendition of The Muppets a horror movie. Listen, Incredible. fucking Muppets in general scare the fuck out of me. Keep like, an eye out for that on fucking uh, Netflix and Kill. <laughs> Muppets Christmas Carol. <laughs> we ooh, doing it. Um, Is that on Disney Plus? It might Does be. Disney own Muppets? I don't know. I think they do. Uh, Disney fucking owns everything. They Disney own probably. Everything. What are I mean, you check your about? ass, girl. You probably. Disney probably owns you. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> just fucking trademarked with a. Yeah. Fucking pair of Mickey Mouse ears I mean, I just, and you didn't realize it. I, I keep an eye on it every day because I'm like, they're coming. Shit. The Haunted Heart Podcast brought to you by Disney. <laughs> Ooh. Girl. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> You're talking about Disney Plus. <laughs> That's going to be Disney Asterix. Disney Plus X. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Rotate the plus. <laughs> anyway, that was a visual joke in an auditory form. <laughs> killing it. Killing it. Holiday ghost stories had certain themes that we often see repeated. So the first key to a Christmas ghost story is a convivial atmosphere. 
words like convivial remind me that this was mostly a uh, tradition in Victorian England. Because convivial is a very British word, yeah. like English. Convivial. English word. It's not a. It's not a fucking Scottish word. Um, so convivial, if you don't know, means cheerful and friendly, slash jovial. I looked it up. <laughs> Research. People in these stories are well fed. They're often hanging out in groups. Me. Not me. <laughs> They're often hanging out in groups. You feel like you're hanging out with them, and you do not wish to leave any more than they do. It's cold outside, but warm in here, and it's time to rediscover that sense of play that so many of us adults lose over the years, and which, when we are fortunate, we remember to discover at Christmas. Hmm. So, uh, after kind of setting a convivial atmosphere, a game might be proposed, say a game of telling stories. Then comes the terror. The status quo is infused with a sensation of something being a touch off. Chuckles give way to shared uneasy glances that maybe this isn't all merrymaking. But this isn't the terror of H.P. Lovecraft or impending doom or the horror that indicts our fundamentally based natures. You know, real life. Yeah. Yes, we do. We know that. It's a rather more pleasing terror. The ghosts, even when they mean to avenge themselves upon us, also seem to have sort of dipped into the eggnog a time or two. Hell yeah. Uh, They have their own playfulness about them. Sure, they can kill you, but they do so with a joke or two up their sleeve. Good, good. Because if you're going to kill me, please tell me a joke first. You know they're they're English ghosts. They're like they're like cracking like English humor as they like murder. Oh, so. It's good. You feel still not good enough so as they're killing you. You're like, oh, okay, I'm okay. a dirty colonial. Cool. <laughs> awesome, I thought. Great. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Traitor. <laughs> cool. That's me. Uh, ain't got no raisin. Ain't got no raisin. <laughs> Just completely butchered the language while we were at it. Too. That's fine, though. Sometimes sometimes I get weirdly aggressive towards English people. We have a lot of listeners Be in the UK. Be careful is English. Yeah, no, but we British. have... Would you say English? Dale is English. Yes, okay. she is not. She is not um, from Scotland or Wales or Ireland. Oh, okay. All right. Cool. <laughs> um, that distinction is going to be more important later when Scotland fucking bolts. Anyway, <laughs> not a political podcast. Um, but no, I I feel like sometimes I get like weirdly. Um, competitive with british people or i feel like not good about myself and then i get like overly defensive and i'm like yeah well fuck you like you know (laughs) it's weird i've been listening to a lot of uh particularly english um uh youtubers and it's it's really giving me a complex i'm like fuck off how about (laughs) with your funny accent that makes me tingle anyway um (laughs) so the ghosts in these ghost stories seem like they have a sort of playfulness with them. They are still dangerous. It is still horror, but it's um, it's a more playful tone. Um, these are short days of the year and a weird mixture of pagan habits and grand religiosity uh, obtains. Uh, there's also booze. Yeah. People didn't have TVs. People drank. People got to telling tales, and then somebody told a tale, and someone tried to tell a bigger tale, and there we have a whole ghost story tr- Christmas tradition. Tradition. Wow, that's having a struggle a at the end. That's that. That is the collective uh, English spirit that is choking the life out of me right now. It's just over there, like you're like you aren't good you enough. Mother. You are a dirty colonial. 
but how dirty? No, anyway. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. Wow, that was a pivot. It's a lot. There's a lot going on. I got to get off YouTube. Um, so we thought, how better to kick off our high-quality trash holiday content than with a bit of family tradition? Because as we all know, we are a family. Family. Yeah. A chosen family. We've curated some holiday horror stories for you, some classic some more modern. So wrap yourself up all warm and cozy against the bitter cold. Light a candle or two to stave off the darkness for a few hours. Maybe pour yourself a glass of holiday cheer and join your Haunted Heart family for a few tales of Christmas terror to send a very different kind of chill down your spine. And our first story this evening is called Smee. A.M. Burrish. No, said Jackson, with a depreciatory smile. I'm sorry. I don't want to upset your game. I shan't be doing that because you'll have plenty without me. But I'm not playing any games of hide-and-seek. It was Christmas Eve, and we were a party of fourteen, with just the proper leavening of youth. We had dined well, it was the season for childish games, and we were all in the mood for playing them. All, that is, except Jackson. When somebody suggested hide-and-seek, there was a rapturous and almost unanimous approval. His was the one dissentient voice. It was not like Jackson to spoil sport, or refuse to do as others wanted. Somebody asked him if he were feeling seedy. No, he answered. I feel perfectly fit, thanks. But, he added with a smile which softened without retracting the flat refusal, I'm not playing hide-and-seek. Why not? someone asked. He hesitated for a moment before replying. I sometimes go and stay at a house where a girl was killed. She was playing hide-and-seek in the dark. She didn't know the house very well. There was a door that led to the servant's staircase. When she was chased, she thought the door led to a bedroom. She opened the door and jumped, and landed at the bottom of the stairs. She broke her neck, of course. We all looked serious. Mrs. Fernley said, How terrible! And were you there when it happened? Jackson shook his head sadly. No, he said. But I was there when something else happened. Something worse. What could be more worse than that? This was, said Jackson. He hesitated for a moment. Then he said, I wonder if any of you have ever played a game called Smee. It's much better than hide-and-seek. The name comes from It's Me, of course. Perhaps you'd like to play it instead of hide-and-seek. Let me tell you the rules of the game. Every player is given a sheet of paper, all the sheets, except one, are blank. On the last sheet of paper is written, Smee. Nobody knows who Smee is except Smee himself, or herself. You turn out the lights, and Smee goes quietly out of the room and hides. After a time, the others go off to search for Smee, but of course they don't know who they are looking for. When one player meets another, he challenges him by saying, Smee. The other player answers, Smee and they continue searching. But the real Smee doesn't answer when someone challenges. The second player stays quietly beside him. 
Presently, they will be discovered by a third player. He will challenge and receive no answer, and he will join the first two. This goes on until all the players are in the same place. The last one to find Smee has to pay a forfeit. It's a good, noisy, amusing game. In a big house, it often takes a long time for everyone to find Smee. Perhaps you'd like to try. I'll happily pay my forfeit and sit here by the fire while you play. It sounds a good game, I remarked. Have you played it too, Jackson? Yes, he answered. I played it in the house that I was telling you about. And she was there? The girl who broke? No. No, said someone else. He told us he wasn't there when she broke her neck. Jackson thought for a moment. I don't know if she was there or not. I'm afraid she was. I know that there were 13 of us playing the game, and there were only 12 people in the house, and I didn't know the dead girl's name. When I heard that whispered name in the dark, it didn't worry me. But I tell you, I'm never going to play that kind of game again. It made me quite nervous for a long time. I prefer to pay my forfeit at once. We all stared at him. His words didn't make sense at all. Tim was the kindest man in the world. He smiled at us all. This sounds like an interesting story, he said. Come on, Jackson. You can tell it to us instead of playing a forfeit. Very well, said Jackson. And here is his story. Have you met the Sangstons? They are cousins of mine, and they live in Surrey. Five years ago, they invited me to go and spend Christmas with them. It was an old house with lots of unnecessary passages and staircases. A stranger could get lost in it quite easily. Well, I went down for that Christmas. Violet Sangston promised me that I knew most of the other guests. Unfortunately, I couldn't get away from my job until Christmas Eve. All the other guests had arrived there the previous day. I was the last to arrive, and I was only just in time for dinner. I said hello to everyone I knew, and Violet Sangston introduced me to the people I didn't know. Then it was time to go in to dinner. That is perhaps why I didn't hear the name of a tall, dark-haired, handsome girl who I hadn't met before. Everyone was in rather a hurry, and I am always bad at catching people's names. She looked cold and clever. She didn't look at all friendly, but she looked interesting, and I wondered who she was. I didn't ask, because I was sure that someone would speak to her by name during the meal. Unluckily, however, I was a long way from her at table. I was sitting next to Mrs. Gorman, and as usual, Mrs. Gorman was being very bright and amusing. Her conversation is always worth listening to, and I completely forgot to ask the name of the dark, proud girl. There were twelve of us, including the Sangstons themselves. We were all young, or trying to be young. Jack and Violet Sangston were the oldest, and their seventeen-year-old son Reggie was the youngest. It was Reggie who suggested Smee when the talk turned to games. He told us the rules of the game, just as I've described them to you. Jack Sangston warned us all. If you are going to play games in the dark, he said, please be careful of the back stairs on the first floor. A door leads to them, and I've often thought about taking the door off. In the dark, a stranger to the house could think they were walking into a room. A girl really did break her neck on those stairs. I asked how it happened. It was about ten years ago before we came here. There was a party, and they were playing hide-and-seek. This girl was looking for somewhere to hide. She heard somebody coming and ran along the passage to get away. She opened the door, thinking it led to a bedroom. She planned to hide in there until the seeker had gone. Unfortunately, it was the door that led to the back stairs, 
She fell straight down to the bottom of the stairs. She was dead when they picked her up. We all promised to be careful. Mrs. Gorman even made a little joke about living to be 90. You see, none of us had known the poor girl, and we did not want to feel sad on Christmas Eve. Well, we all started the game immediately after dinner. Young Reggie Sangston went round making sure all the lights were off, except the one in the servants' rooms and in the sitting room where we were. We then prepared 12 sheets of paper. Eleven of them were blank, and one of them had Smee written on it. Reggie mixed them all up, then we each took one. The person who got the paper with Smee on it had to hide. I looked at mine and saw that it was blank. A moment later, all the electric lights went out. In the darkness, I heard someone moving very quietly to the door. After a minute, somebody blew a whistle, and we all rushed to the door. I had no idea who was Smee. For five or ten minutes, we were all rushing up and down passages and in and out of rooms, challenging each other and answering, Smee? Smee! After a while, the noise died down, and I guessed that someone had found Smee. After a time, I found a group of people all sitting on some narrow stairs. I challenged and received no answer. So, Smee was there. I hurriedly joined the group. Presently, two more players arrived. Each one was hurrying to avoid being last. Jack Sangston was last and was given a forfeit. I think we're all here now, aren't we? He remarked. He lit a match, locked up, looked up the staircase, and began to count. Nine. Ten. Eleven. Twelve. Thirteen, he said, and then laughed. That's silly. There's one too many. The match went out, and he lit another and began to count. He got as far as twelve. Then he looked puzzled. There are thirteen people here, he said. I haven't counted myself yet. Oh, nonsense, I laughed. You probably began with yourself, and now you want to count yourself twice. His son took out his electric torch. It gave a better light than the matches, and we all began to count. Of course there were twelve of us. Jack laughed. Well, he said, I was sure I counted thirteen twice. From halfway up the stairs, Violet Sangston spoke nervously. I thought there was somebody sitting two steps above me. Have you moved, Captain Ransom? The captain said that he hadn't. But I thought there was somebody sitting between Mrs. Sangston and me. Just for a moment, there was an uncomfortable something in the air. A cold finger seemed to touch us all. For that moment, we all felt that something odd and unpleasant had just happened and was likely to happen again. Then we laughed at ourselves, and at each other, and we felt normal again. There were only twelve of us, and that was that. Still laughing, we marched back to the sitting room to begin again. This time, I was Smee. Violet Sangston found me while I was searching for a hiding place. That game didn't last long. Soon, there were twelve people, and the game was over. Violet felt cold and wanted her jacket. Her husband went up to their bedroom to fetch it. As soon as he'd gone, Reggie touched me on the arm. He was looking pale and sick. Quick, he whispered. I've got to talk to you. Something horrible has happened. We went into the breakfast room. What, what's the matter? I asked. I don't know. You were Smee last time, weren't you? Well, of course I didn't know who Smee was. While Mother and the others ran to the west side of the house and found you, I went east. 
There's a deep clothes cupboard in my bedroom. It looked like a good hiding place. I thought that perhaps Smee might be there. I opened the door in the dark and touched somebody's hand. Smee, I whispered. There was no answer. I thought I found Smee. Well, I don't understand it, but I suddenly had a strange, cold feeling. I can't describe it, but I felt that something was wrong. So I turned on my electric torch, and there was nobody there. Now, I am sure I touched a hand, and nobody could get out of the cupboard because I was standing in the doorway. What do you think? You imagined that you touched a hand, I said. He gave a short laugh. I knew you would say that, he said. Of course I imagined it. That's the only explanation, isn't it? I agreed with him. I could see that he still felt shaken. Together we returned to the sitting room for another game of Smee. The others were all ready and waiting to start again. Perhaps it was my imagination, although I'm almost sure that it was not, but I had a feeling that nobody was really enjoying the game anymore. But everyone was too polite to mention it. All the same, I had the feeling that something was wrong. All the fun had gone out of the game. Something deep inside me was trying to warn me. Take care, it whispered. Take care. There was some unnatural, unhealthy influence at work in the house. Why did I have this feeling? Because Jack Sangston had counted 13 people instead of 12? Because his son imagined he had touched someone's hand in an empty cupboard? I tried to laugh at myself, but I did not succeed. Well, we started again. While we were all chasing the unknown Smee, we were all as noisy as ever. But it seemed to me that most of us were just acting. We were no longer enjoying the game. At first I stayed with others, but for several minutes no Smee was found. I left the main group and started searching on the first floor at the west side of the house. And there, while I was feeling my way along, I bumped into a pair of human knees. I put out my hand and touched a soft, heavy curtain. Then I knew where I was. There were tall, deep windows with window seats at the end of the passage. The curtains reached to the ground. Somebody was sitting in a corner of one of the window seats behind a curtain. Aha, I thought. I've caught Smee. So I pulled the curtain to one side and touched a woman's arm. It was a dark, moonless night outside. I couldn't see the woman sitting in the corner of the window seat. Smee? I whispered. There was no answer. When Smee is challenged, he, or she, does not answer. So I sat down beside her to wait for the others. Then I whispered, What's your name? And out of the darkness beside me the whisper came, Brenda Ford. I did not know the name, but I guessed at once who she was. I knew every girl in the house by name except one, and that was the tall, pale, dark girl. So here she was, sitting beside me on the window seat, shut in between a heavy curtain and a window. I was beginning to enjoy the game. I wondered if she was enjoying it, too. I whispered one or two rather ordinary questions to her and received no answer. Smee is a game of silence. It is a rule of the game that Smee and the person, or persons, who have found Smee have to keep quiet. This, of course, makes it harder for the others to find them, but there was nobody else about. I wondered, therefore, why she was insisting on silence. I spoke again and got no answer. I began to feel a little annoyed. 
Perhaps she is one of those cold, clever girls who have a poor opinion of all men, I thought. She doesn't like me, and she is using the rules of the game as an excuse for not speaking. Well, if she doesn't like sitting here with me, I certainly don't want to sit with her. I turned away from her. I hope someone finds us soon, I thought. As I sat there, I realized that I disliked sitting beside this girl very much indeed. That was strange. The girl I had seen at dinner had seemed likable in a cold kind of way. I noticed her and wanted to know more about her. But now I felt really uncomfortable beside her. The feeling of something wrong, something unnatural, was growing. I remembered touching her arm, and I trembled with horror. I wanted to jump up and run away. I prayed that someone else would come along soon. Just then I heard light footsteps in the passage. Somebody on the other side of the curtain brushed against my knees. The curtain moved to one side, and a woman's hand touched my shoulder. Smee whispered a voice that I recognized at once. It was Mrs. Gorman. Of course, she received no answer. She came and sat down beside me, and at once I felt very much better. It's Tony Jackson, isn't it? She whispered. Yes, I whispered back. You're not Smee, are you? No, she's on my other side. She reached out across me. I heard her fingernails scratch a woman's silk dress. Hello, Smee? How are you? Who are you? Oh, is it against the rules to talk? Never mind. Tony will break the rules. Do you know, Tony? This game is beginning to annoy me a little. I hope they aren't going to play it all evening. I like to play a nice, quiet game, all together beside a warm fire. Me too, I agreed. Can't you suggest something to them? There's something rather unhealthy about this particular game. I'm sure I'm being very silly, but I can't get rid of the idea that we've got an extra player. Somebody who ought not to be here at all. That was exactly how I felt, but I didn't say so. However, I felt very much better. Mrs. Gorman's arrival had chased away my fears. We sat talking. I wonder when the others will find us, said Mrs. Gorman. After a time, we heard the sound of feet, and young Reggie's voice shouting, Hello, hello, is anyone here? Yes, I answered. Is Mrs. Gorman with you? Yes. What happened to you? You've both got forfeits. We've all been waiting for you for hours. But you haven't found Smee yet, I complained. You haven't, you mean. I was Smee this time. But Smee is here with us, I cried. Yes, agreed Mrs. Gorman. The curtain was pulled back, and we sat looking into the eye of Reggie's electric torch. I looked at Mrs. Gorman and then on my other side. Between me and the wall was an empty place on the window seat. I stood up at once, then I sat down again. I was feeling very sick, and the world seemed to be going round and round. There was somebody there, I insisted, because I touched her. So did I, said Mrs. Gorman in a trembling voice. And I don't think anyone could leave this window seat without us knowing. Reggie gave a shaky little laugh. I remembered his unpleasant experience earlier that evening. Someone's been playing jokes, he said. Are you coming down? We were not very popular when we came down to the, fi to the sitting room. I found the two of them sitting behind a curtain on a window seat, said Reggie. I went up to the tall, dark girl. So you pretended to be Smee and then went away, I accused her. She shook her head. Afterwards, we all played cards in the sitting room, and I was very glad. Sometime later, Jack Sangston wanted to talk to me. I could see that he was rather cross with me, and soon he told me the reason. 
Tony, he said. I suppose you are in love with Mrs. Gorman. That, that's your business, but please don't make love to her in my house during a game. You kept everyone waiting. It was very rude, and I'm ashamed of you. But we were not alone, I protested. There was somebody else there, somebody who was pretending to be Smee. I believe it was that tall, dark girl, Miss Ford. She whispered her name to me. Of course, she refused to admit it afterwards. Jack Sangston stared at me. Miss who? He breathed. Brenda Ford, she said. Jack put a hand on my shoulder. Look here, Tony, he said. I don't mind a joke, but enough is enough. We don't want to worry the ladies. Brenda Ford is the name of the girl who broke her neck on the stairs. She was playing hide-and-seek here ten years ago. Christmas, as retold by S.E. Schlosser. The soft thud of following footsteps echoed behind him as he hurried through the snowflakes toward home. They kept pace with him, quickening when he quickened and slowing when he slowed. It was creepy. His flesh crawled at the sound and he sped up, cursing himself for walking home alone from the midnight Christmas mass. Normally not a pious man... The middle-aged bachelor had suddenly been struck by a wish to hear the old Christmas song sung once again by a church choir, and had walked across town to attend the service. Now he regretted his choice as he passed dark house after dark house in the snowy night, and the footsteps ever followed. He sped up until he was nearly running and skidded into his street. A few more paces brought him to the bottom of his front steps, and he dashed up them. He realized suddenly that the following footsteps had ceased abruptly. He glanced behind him at the cross street from which he had just turned and saw only one pair of footprints in the snow-covered street where there should have been two. He frowned in puzzlement and then shuddered as a cold breeze struck him, driving snow against his collar and slammed against the door. Almost, it seemed to pass through the door, but that was superstitious nonsense. His hand was shaking as he unlocked the front door and hurried inside. He expected darkness, but was delighted to see the yellow glow of firelight coming from his study doorway upstairs. His old housekeeper, whom he thought firmly asleep in her attic bedroom, must have lit the fire pending his return. He shrugged out of his coat and paused for a moment, amazed to find it still warm and dry, though he had walked for more than a mile through a snowstorm. It was almost as if he'd been walking in a bubble of calm air, though he remembered the soft snowflakes hitting his face when he first stepped out of the church, before the mysterious footsteps began. His shudder was interrupted by a shout of greeting as his old friend Andy came hurrying out of the study. His whole face lit up in a grin at the unexpected surprise. 
The two men shook hands heartily and retreated back to the warmth of the firelight, talking so fast that they stumbled over each other's words. Andy had left town years ago to take a government job in D.C., and they hadn't seen each other since. Nearly an hour passed before it occurred to him that his guest might be hungry. His offer of a meal was instantly accepted, but Andy was unwilling to leave the comfort of the fire to eat in the kitchen, so he jogged downstairs alone to fetch some food. He didn't wonder at his friend's reluctance to join him in the kitchen. Andy looked very pale and had kept shivering with cold while they talked. He hoped his friend wasn't ailing. A few moments later, he was back with warmed-up meat and potatoes and a couple of glasses of beer, apologizing profusely as he handed Andy a plate for the mismatched dinnerware. Andy just laughed and hunkered down to eat. When they were both finished, he showed his friend to a guest room and then tumbled into his own bed to sleep, all his apprehension caused by mysterious footsteps forgotten in the visit of his friend. He jumped out of bed Christmas morning and dashed immediately downstairs to the guest room to rouse his friend. Andy wasn't there, and the bed had not been slept in. That was odd. He ran down to look in the study, but Andy wasn't there either, and one plate full of food was sitting on the end table beside his old friend's chair. It was completely untouched though he'd seen Andy eating from it the night before. Skin creeping at the thought, he ran to the kitchen and asked his housekeeper if she'd seen Andy. But the housekeeper had seen no one either the previous night or this morning. He flopped down on the bottom step of the staircase, completely baffled. Where had Andy gone? It was a mystery that plagued him all Christmas Day, and he didn't enjoy his holiday dinner at all. a fact that annoyed his housekeeper. He was awakened the next morning from a restless sleep by the sound of the front doorbell. He stumbled out of bed and was splashing water from the bedside pitcher onto his sleepy eyes when a knock came at his bedroom door. When he answered, his housekeeper handed him a telegram that had just arrived. As she hurried back downstairs to prepare his breakfast, he opened it curiously, not knowing who would be telegraphing him so urgently. As he read the telegram, he started to tremble. The message was short and to the point. Andy's family regretted to inform him that his old friend Andy had passed away on Christmas Eve in his home in Washington, D.C. He sat down hard on the bed, the telegram fluttering away from his hand. It must have been Andy who followed him home on Christmas Eve. That would explain the eerie footsteps and the dry coat in the middle of a snowstorm. He'd spent Christmas Eve with a ghost. The Boy Who Killed Santa Claus by Mark Allen Gunnells 
Seven-year-old Henry Childers crawled reluctantly under the covers of his bed. But mom, he whined, I'm not sleepy. Can I stay up a few more hours? It's almost ten already, his mother, Tanya, said with an indulgent smile. If you don't get to sleep, Santa won't stop here tonight. Do you think Santa got my letter this year? Henry asked, sitting up against the headboard. I'm sure he did, honey. Because I don't want it to be like last year. Tanya sighed heavily and rubbed at her temples. She'd been hearing this same tirade from her son for an entire year now. Henry, there was nothing wrong with what you got from Santa last year. I asked for an Xbox, and he gave me a PlayStation. It's not the same. As I've told you a hundred times, maybe Santa was all out of Xboxes, Tanya said, pulling the covers up to just under Henry's chin. She and her husband had gone to every store in the city looking for an Xbox last year, but they'd all been sold out. It had been a PlayStation or nothing. But still, it hadn't satisfied Henry. I mailed my letter in October last year, Henry said. That gave him plenty of time to have his elves whip me up an Xbox. Henry, Tanya said a little more sharply than she'd intended. You're being awfully ungrateful. There are children in the world who have nothing. If you don't start being more appreciative, Santa may decide to just skip our house altogether. Okay, Henry said, his lower lip poked out like a shell. I'm sorry. Just get to sleep, Tanya said, leaning over and kissing her son on the forehead. When you wake up in the morning, you just might find that bike you've been wanting waiting under the tree. You think Santa will like the cookies and milk we left for him? Henry said. I'm sure he'll think they're delicious. I'll see you in the morning, sweetie. Tanya turned off the light. The small nightlight plugged into the electrical socket by the closet, throwing a muted yellow glow throughout the room. She eased the door closed, leaving Henry to dream of Christmas morning. Do you think it's safe to start? Jonas Childers asked his wife. They were sitting in the living room, watching a sci-fi channel marathon of the Silent Night, Deadly Night films. Tanya glanced at the clock, saw that it was just past one o'clock in the morning. He should be sound asleep by now, she said. I think we can get started. Good, Jonas said. It'll probably take me till dawn to get that bike put together. They went up to the attic, careful to avoid all the squeakiest boards, and brought down all of Henry's presents. Tanya began arranging all the smaller gifts around the tree, while Jonas unfolded the instructions for the bike and began assembling it. Shit, Jonas cursed under his breath, trying to fit together two pieces that simply refused to fit together. As much trouble as this is, Henry better like this damn bike. Tanya knelt next to her husband, took the uncooperative pieces, and easily snapped them together. Are you kidding? He'll absolutely love it. He better. I don't want to have to go through another year hearing him bitch and moan like he did about that damn PlayStation. <laughs> it did get a bit tiresome, Tanya said with a giggle. But Henry just wants what he wants, and he won't settle for anything else. Like mother, like son. Tanya swatted her husband on the arm and said, That's not true. I settled for you, after all. Very funny, Jonas said. How about you settle for passing me those cookies? Tonya had baked a bunch of oatmeal raisin cookies, half of which her family had eaten, 
the other half of which had been placed on a plate for Santa. She took the plate and handed it to her husband, who immediately inhaled two of the cookies. Careful, Tanya said, reading over the instructions. You keep that up, you'll soon be fat as Santa. This isn't for me, Jonas said, around a mouthful of cookies spewing crumbs, like a fine mist. It's for Henry. Think how disappointed he'd be if he woke up and saw that Santa hadn't eaten all the cookies he'd left for him. Don't talk with your mouth full, Tanya said with a smile. Hand me the milk, please. They did not leave out a glass of milk for Santa, since that would curdle, but they placed it in a thermos to keep it cold. Tanya passed the thermos to her husband. Jonas popped the top of the thermos and gulped down several swallows of the milk. Suddenly, he retched, spitting milk into the air like a geyser, the thermos dropping from his hand and leaking its contents onto the carpet. Jonas clutched at his throat, making strangled gagging noises as milk and blood dribbled down his chin. Tanya screamed and grabbed her husband as he collapsed onto her lap. His body was jerking with violent spasms. His eyes rolled up to the whites. He coughed violently and more frothy blood sprayed Tanya's arms, and she thought there were chunks of tissue mixed with it. Oh God, Jonas, she screamed, crying, what's wrong? What should I do? What's going on, Henry said, stepping into the room wearing his pajamas, rubbing the sleep dust from his eyes. I heard screaming. Henry, get the phone and call 911, Tanya yelled frantically. Something's wrong with your father. He needs an ambulance right away. What is it? Henry asked, wide-eyed, stepping farther into the room. Henry, call 911 now! Henry started to run toward the phone, but then he spotted the spilled thermos of milk and froze. Did Dad drink the milk? He asked, snatching up the thermos and waving it at his mother. What? Tanya said, feeling her husband's spasms tapering off, afraid to contemplate what that might mean. Your father needs help! Did Dad drink the milk? Henry said again, his old stubborn self. This milk was for Santa Claus, not for Dad. Henry, Tanya screamed, desperate tears of frustration and helplessness streaking her face. This isn't the time. This milk was for Santa Claus, not for Dad, Henry roared, throwing the thermos across the room. A numbness began to spread throughout Tanya's body, starting in her chest and reaching out through her limbs. Comprehension came slowly and it made her feel cold inside, cold and empty. What did you do? She scroped, her voice raw and raspy. Henry, what did you do to the milk? I poured Drano in it, he said matter-of-factly, as if stating that he'd brushed his teeth. Tanya was on her feet in an instant, the still form of her husband stretched out on the floor. She grabbed Henry by the shoulders and shook him, shook him hard. Why would you do such a thing? She shouted into his face. Why in the name of God would you do such a thing? I wanted an Xbox, Henry shouted back, wrenching out of his mother's grasps. Not a PlayStation, an Xbox. And Santa knew that. He knew that, and he gave me the wrong thing anyway. I wanted to teach him a lesson, make him pay for giving me the wrong gift last year. Tanya stumbled back, hands to her mouth, and watched as her son turned and ran back to his room, slamming the door behind him. She snatched up the phone and quickly dialed 911, while Santa chopped up a topless teenager on the television behind her. Ah, children. Such delights. Such a comfort to their parents in their old age. Of course, Henry's parents, I, I mean, parent, probably won't reach old age. But, what of that?
Dark Christmas by Jeanette Winterson. We had borrowed the house from a friend none of us seemed to know. High Fallen House stood on an eminence overlooking the sea. It was a square Victorian gentleman's residence. The large bay windows looked down through the pine trees towards the shore. Six stone steps led the visitor up the devil front door, where a gothic bell pull released a loud, mournful clang deep into the distances of the house. Laurel lined the drive. The stable block was disused. The walled garden had been locked up in 1914 when the gardeners went to war. Only one had returned. I had been warned that the high brick wall enclosing the garden was unsafe. As I passed it slowly in the car, I saw a faded notice falling off from the paint-peeled door. Do not enter. I was the first to arrive. My friends were following by train, and I was to collect them the next day, and then we would settle down to Christmas. I had driven from Bristol, and I was tired. There was a Christmas tree roped on top of my 4x4 and a trunk load of provisions. We were not near any town, but the housekeeper had left stacked wood to build a fire, and I brought a shepherd's pie and a bottle of roja for my first night. The kitchen was cheerful enough once I had got a fire going, and the radio was playing while I unpacked our festive supplies. I checked my phone. No signal. Still, I knew the time of the train tomorrow, and it was a relief to feel that the world had gone away. I put my food in the oven to heat up, poured a glass of wine, and went upstairs to find myself a bedroom. The first landing had three bedrooms leading off it. Each had a moth-eaten rug, a metal bed, and a mahogany chest of drawers. At the far end of the landing was a second set of stairs going up to the attic floor. Now, I'm not so romantic about maids' rooms or nurseries, and there was something about that second set of stairs that made me hesitate. The landing was bright, and in the sudden way of late sun on a winter's afternoon. Yet the light ended abruptly at the foot of the stairs, as though it couldn't go any farther. I didn't want to be near that set of stairs, so I chose the room at the front of the house. As I went to bring up my bag, the house bell started to ring, its jerky, metallic hammer sounding somewhere in the guts of the house. I was surprised, but not alarmed. I expected the housekeeper. I opened the door. There was no one there. I went down the steps and looked around. I admit I was frightened. The night was clear and soundless. There was no car in the distance, no footsteps walking away. Determined to conquer my fear, I walked around a little. Then, turning back to the house, I saw it. The bell wire ran along the side of the house under a sheltering gutter, Perhaps 30 or 40 bats were dangling upside down on the vibrating wire. The same number swooped and swerved in a dark mass. Obviously, their movement on the wire had set off the bell. I like bats. Clever bats. Good. Now, supper. I ate. I drank. 
I wondered why love is so hard and life is so short. Then I went to bed. The room was warmer now, and I was ready to sleep. The sound of the sea ebbed into the flow of my dreams. I woke from a dead sleep in dead darkness to hear... What? What can I hear? It sounded like a ball bearing or a marble on the bare floor above my head. It rolled hard on hard and then hit the wall. Then it rolled again in the other direction. This might not have mattered except that the other direction was upwards. Things can come loose and roll downwards, but they cannot come loose and roll up unless someone That thought was so unwelcome that I dismissed it along with the law of gravity. Whatever was rolling over my head must be a natural dislodging. The house was drafty and unused. The attics were under the eaves where any kind of weather might get in. Weather or an animal. Remember the bats? And I pulled the covers up to my eyebrows and pretended not to listen. There it was again. Hard on hard, on hit, on pause, on roll. I waited for sleep, waiting for daylight. We are lucky, even the worst of us, because daylight comes. It was a brooding day, that 21st of December, the shortest day of the year. Coffee, coat on, car keys. Shouldn't I just check the attic? The second set of stairs was narrow, a servant's staircase. It led to a lathe and plaster corridor, barely a shoulder-width wide. I started coughing. Breathing was difficult. Damp had dropped the plaster in thick, crumbling heaps on the floorboards. As below, there were three doors. Two were closed. The door to the room above my room was ajar. I made myself go forward. The room was under the eaves, as I had guessed. The floor was rough. There was no bed, only a washstand and a clothes rail. Standing about two feet tall, it was more like a doll's house than a Christmas decoration. A nativity scene in the corner. Inside the open-fronted stable stood the animals, the shepherds, the crib, Joseph. Above the roof, on a bit of wire, was a battered star. It was old, handmade in a workmanlike but not craftsmanlike sort of way. The painted wood now rubbed in faded pigments of time. I thought I would carry it downstairs and put it by our Christmas tree. It must have been made for the children when there were children here. I stuffed my pockets with the figures and animals and left quickly, leaving the door open. I had to set off for the station. Stephen and Susie could help me with the rest later. As soon as I was out of the house, my lungs felt clear again. Must be the plaster dust. The drive to the station was along the coast road. Lonely and unyielding, the road turned in a series of blind bends and tight corners. I met no one, and I saw no one. 
gulls circled over the sea. The station itself was a simple shelter on a long, single track. There were no information boards. I checked my phone. No signal. At last, the train appeared distantly down the track. I was excited. Memories of my father visiting as a child when he was stationed at the RAF base gave me a rush of pleasure whenever I travel by train or come to meet one. The train slowed and halted. The guards stood down for a moment. I watched the doors. It wasn't a big train, this branch line train, but none of the doors opened. I waved at the guard who came over. I'm meeting my friends. He shook his head. Train's empty. Next stop is the end of the line. I was confused. Had they gotten off at the earlier stop? I described them. The guard shook his head again. I noticed strangers. They would have boarded at Carlisle and asked me where to get off. Always do. Is there another train before tomorrow? One a day and that's your lot. And more than anybody needs in a place like this. Where are you staying? High Fallen House. Do you know it? Oh, I... We all know it. He looked as if he was about to say something else. Instead, he blew his whistle. The empty train pulled away, leaving me staring down the long track, watching... Watching the red light like a warning. I needed to get a signal on my phone. I drove on past the station, following the steep hill, hoping some height would connect me to the rest of the world. At the top of the hill, I stopped the car and got out, pulling up the collar of my coat. This first snow hit my face with insect insistence, sharp and spiteful like little bites. I looked out across the whitening bay. That must be High Fallen House. But what's that? Two figures walking on the beach. Is it Stephen and Susie? Had they driven here after all? Then as I strained my eyes against the deceit of the distance, I realized that the second figure was much smaller than the first. They were walking purposefully towards the house. When I arrived back, it was nearly dark. I put on the lights, blew the fire into a blaze. There was no sign of the mysterious couple I had seen from the hill. Perhaps it had been the housekeeper and her daughter, come to make sure that everything was all right. I had a telephone number for Mrs. Wormwood, but without a signal, I could not call her. The snow was thickening in windy swirls. Relax, have a whiskey. I leaned on the warm kitchen range with my whiskey in my hand. The wooden figures I had brought down from the attic were lying on the kitchen table. I should go up and get the stable. I don't want to. I bounded up the first set of stairs using energy to force out unease. At my bedroom, I put on the light. That felt better. Then the second set of stairs stood in shadow at the end of the long landing. I felt that constriction in my lungs again. Why am I holding on to the handrail like an old man? I could see that the only light to the attic was at the top of the stairs. I found the round brown backlight switch. 
I flicked down the nipple. A single bulb lit up reluctantly. The room was straight ahead. The door was closed. Hadn't I left it open? I turned the handle and stood in the doorway, the room dimly lit by the light from the stairs. Washstand. Nativity. Clothes rail. On the clothes rail was a child's dress. I hadn't noticed that before. Suppose I'd been in a hurry. Pushing aside my misgivings, I went in purposefully and bent down to pick up the wooden nativity. It was heavy, and I had just got it secure in my arms when the light on the landing went out. Hello? Who's there? There's someone breathing like they can barely breathe, not faint, struggling for breath. I mustn't turn around because whoever, or whatever it is, is behind me. I stood still for a minute, steadying my nerve. Then I shuffled forward towards the edge of light coming from the downstairs. At the doorway, I heard a step behind me, lost my balance, and put out a hand to steady myself. My hand gripped something wet. The clothes rail. It must be the dress. My heart was overbeating. Don't panic. Bacolite, bad wiring, strange house, darkness, aloneness, but you're not alone, are you? Back in the kitchen with whiskey, radio four and pasta boiling. I examined the dress. It was for a small child, and it was hand-knitted. The wool was smelly and sopping. I washed it out and left it hanging over the sink to drip. I guess there must be a hole in the roof and the dress had been soaking up the rain for a long time. I ate my supper, tried to read, and told myself it had been nothing. Nothing at all. It was only 8 p.m. I didn't want to go to bed, though the snow outside was like a quilt. I decided to arrange the nativity. Donkey, sheep, camels, wise men, shepherd, star, Joseph. The crib was there, but it was empty. There was no Christ child. And there was no Mary. Had I dropped them in the dark room? I hadn't heard anything fall, and these wooden figures were six inches tall. Joseph was wearing a wooden woolen tunic, but his wooden legs had painted days. I pulled off the tunic. Underneath, wooden Joseph wore a painted uniform. First World War. When I turned him round, I saw there was a gash in his back like a stab wound. My phone beeped. I dropped Joseph, grabbed the phone. It was a text message from Susie. Trying to call you. Leave tomorrow. I pressed call. Nothing. Tried to send a text. Still nothing. But what did it matter? Suddenly I felt relief and calm. They had been delayed, but that was all. Tomorrow they'd be here. I sat down again with a nativity. Perhaps the missing figures were inside. I put in my hand. My fingers closed around a tiny metal object. It was a small iron key with a hoop top. Maybe it was the key to the attic door. 
Outside, snow had fallen on snow. The sky had cleared. The moon sped above the sea. I had gone to bed and I was deep asleep when I heard it clearly, above me. Footsteps. Pacing down the room, hesitate, turn, return. I lay in bed, eyes staring blindly at the blind ceiling. Why do we open our eyes when we can't see anything? And what was there to see? I don't believe in ghosts. I wanted to put on the light, but what if the light didn't come on? Why would it be worse to be in darkness that I had not chosen than darkness that I was choosing? But it would be worse. I sat up in bed and pulled back the curtain a little. The moon had been so bright tonight. Surely there would be light. There was light. Outside the house, hand in hand, stood the still and silent figures of a mother and child. I did not sleep again till daylight, and when I slept and woke again, it was almost midday, and already the light was lowering. Hurrying to get coffee, I saw that the dress was gone. I had left it dripping over the sink, and it was gone. Get out of the house. I set off for the station. There was an air frost that had coated the trees in glittering white. It was beautiful and deathly. The world held in ice. On the road, there were no car tracks. No noise but the roar and drop of the sea. I moved slowly and saw no one. In the white, unmoving landscape, I wondered if there was anyone else left alive. At the station, I waited. I waited some time past the time until the train whistled on the track. The train stopped. The guard got down and saw me. He shook his head. There's no one, he said. No one at all. I thought I would cry. I took out my mute phone. I flashed up the message. Trying to call you. Leave tomorrow. The guard looked at it. Happen it's you who should be leaving, he said. There's no more trains past Carlisle now till the 27th. Tomorrow was the last and that's been canceled. Weather. I wrote down a number and gave it to the guard. Will you phone my friends and tell them I'm on my way home? On the slow journey back to High Fallen House, I filled my mind with my departure. It would be slow and dangerous to travel at night, but I could not consider another night alone. Or not alone. All I had to do was manage 40 miles to Inchbarn. There was a pub and a guest house and remote but normal life. The text message kept playing in my head. Had, had it really meant that I should leave? And why? Because Susie and Stephen couldn't come? Weather? Illness? It's all just a guessing game. The fact is, I have to go. The house seemed subdued when I returned. I had left the lights on, and I went straight upstairs to pack my bag. At once, I saw the light to the attic was on. I paused. Breathed. Of course it's on. I never switched it off. That proves it's a wiring fault. I must tell the housekeeper. My bag packed, I threw the food into a box and put everything back in the car. I had the whiskey in front. 
and a blanket I stole from the bed, and I made a hot water bottle just in case. It was only five o'clock. At worst, I'd be at Inchbarn by 9 p.m. I got in the car and turned the key. The radio came on for a second, died, and as the ignition clicked and clicked, I knew that the battery was flat. Two hours ago at the station, the car had started first time. Even if I had left the lights on, but but I hadn't left the lights on. A cold panic hit me. I took a swig at the whiskey. I couldn't sleep in the car all night. I would die. I don't want to die. Back in the house, I wondered what I was going to do all night. I must not fall asleep. I had noticed some old books and volumes when I had explored downstairs yesterday, assorted dusty adventure stories and tales of empire. As I sorted through them, I came across a faded velvet photograph album. In the cold, deserted sitting room, I began to discover the past. High Fallen House, 1910. The women in long skirts with miraculous waists, the men in shooting tweeds. The stable boys in waistcoats, the gardening boys wearing flat caps, the maids in starched aprons, and here they are again in their Sunday best, a wedding photograph, Joseph and Mary Locke. 1912. He was a gardener. She was a maid. In the back of the album, loose and unsorted, were further photographs and newspaper cuttings. 1914. The men in uniform. There was Joseph. I took the album back into the kitchen and put it next to my wooden solider. I had on my coat and scarf. I propped myself up in two chairs by the wood-fired range and dozed and waited and waited and dozed. It was perhaps two o'clock when I heard a child crying. Not a child who has scraped his knee or lost a toy but an abandoned child. A child whose own voice is his last hold on life. A child who cries and knows that no one will come. The sound was not above me. It was above the above me. I knew where it was coming from. I put my hands over my ears and my head between my knees. I could not shut out the sound. A locked-up child, a hungry child, a child who was cold and wet and frightened. Twice I got up and went to the door. Twice I sat down again. The crying stopped. Silence. A dreadful silence. I raised my head. Footsteps were coming down the stairs, not one foot in front of the other, but one foot dragging slightly, then the other joining it, steadying, stepping again. At the bottom of the stairs, the footsteps paused. Then they did what I knew they would do with all the terror in my body. The footsteps came towards the kitchen door. Whatever was out there standing 12 feet away on the other side of the door I stood behind the table and picked up a knife. The door swung open with the violent force that rammed the brass doorknob into the plaster of the wall. 
Wind and snow blew into the kitchen, whirling up the photographs and cuttings on the table. I saw that the front door itself was wide open like the entrance hall to a wind tunnel. Holding the knife, I went forward into the hall to shut the door. The pendant metal lantern that swung from the ceiling was swinging wildly on its long chain. A sudden gust lurched it forward like a child's swing pushed too high. It fell back at force against the large semicircular fanlight above the front door. The fanlight shattered and fell around my shoulders in shards of sharp rain, flicker, buzz, darkness. The house lights were out. No wind now. No cries. Silence again. Glass hid in the snow-lit hall, I walked out of the front door and into the night. At the drive, I turned left and I saw them. The mother and child. The child was wearing the woolen dress. She had no shoes. She held up her arms piteously to her mother who stood like stone. I ran forward. I grabbed the child in my arms. There was no child. I had fallen face down in the snow. Help me. That's not my voice. I'm on my feet again. The mother is ahead of me. I follow her. She's going towards the walled garden. She seems to pass through the door, leaving me on the other side. Do not enter. I tried the rusty hoop handle. It broke off, taking a piece of door with it. I kicked the door open. It fell off its hinges. The ruined and abandoned garden lay before me. A walled garden of one acre used to feed 20 people. But that was a long time ago. There were footprints in the snow. I followed them. They led me to the bothy, its roof patched with corrugated iron. There was no door, but inside seemed dry and sound. There was a tear-off calendar still on the wall. 22 December 1916. I put my hand in my pocket and I realized that the key from the nativity was still there. At the time, I heard a chair scrape on the floor in the room beyond. I had no fear anymore. As the body first shivers and then numbs with cold, my feelings were frozen. I was moving through shadows as one who dreams. In the room beyond, there was a low fire lit in the tiny tin fireplace. On either side of the fire sat the mother and the child. The child was absorbed playing with a marble. Her bare feet were blue, but she did not seem to feel the cold any more than I did. Are we dead then? The woman with the shawl over her head looked at me with deep, expressionless eyes. I recognized her. It was Mary Locke. She nodded at me, or at not me, at some other me and some other time. I don't know. Her gaze went to a tall cupboard. I knew that my key fitted this cupboard and that I must open it. I did so. A dusty uniform fell out, crumpling like a puppet. The uniform was not quite empty of its occupant. The back of the faded wool jacket had a long slash where the lungs would have been. I looked at the knife in my hand. 
Open the door. Are you in there? Open the door. I woke to a blinding white. Where am I? Something's rocking. It's the car. I'm in my car. A heavy glove was brushing off the snow. I sat up, found my keys, and pressed the unlock button. It was morning. Outside was the guard from the train and a woman who announced herself as Mrs. Wormwood. Fine mess you've made here, she said. We went into the kitchen. I was shivering so much that Mrs. Wormwood relented and began to make coffee. Alfie fetched me, she said, after he spoke to your friends. There's a body, I said, in the walled garden. Is that where it is? said Mrs. Wormwood. At Christmas, 1914, Joseph Locke had gone to war. Before he left for Flanders, he had made a nativity scene for his little girl. When he came back in 1916, he had been gassed. They heard him, climbing the stairs, gasping for breath through his froth-corrupted lungs. His mind had gone, they said. At night, in the attic where he slept with his wife and child, he leaned vacantly against the wall, rolling the child's marbles up and down, down and up, pacing, pacing, pacing. One night, just before Christmas, he strangled his wife and daughter. He left them for dead in the bed and went out. But his wife was not dead. She followed him. In the morning, they found her sitting by the nativity, her dress dark with blood, her finger marks livid at her throat. She was singing a lullaby and pushing the point of the knife into the back of the wooden figure. Joseph was never found. Are you going to call the police? I said. What for? said Mrs. Wormwood. Let the dead bury the dead. Alfie, the guard, went out to see my car. It started first time. The exhaust blew in the white air. I left them clearing up and was about to set off when I remembered I had left my radio in the kitchen. I went back inside. The kitchen was empty. I could hear the two of them in the attic. I picked up the radio. The nativity was on the table as I had left it. But it wasn't as I had left it. Joseph was there, and the animals, and the shepherds, and the worn-out star. And in the center was the crib. And next to the crib were the wooden figures of a mother and child. We hope those tales thrilled and chilled you. And if you liked our readings here and would like to hear more of this type of thing, we'd suggest checking out our Patreon at patreon.com slash thehauntedheart. Since we regularly post readings of horror stories there as part of our bonus content for Patreons. Patreons? Patrons? Patrons. I'm never going to get it. Nope, never. I'm never going to get it. You can also check us out on Instagram at The Haunted Heart Podcast, Twitter at The Haunted Heart, and you can join our closed Facebook group by searching The Haunted Heart Podcast to stay connected. And until we meet again in Christmas cheer, dear friends, stay spooky.
Spooky. Spooky.